Well, good morning, and it is a joy to be with you this morning, and this is a special day in our month where we can observe the Lord's table in a few moments and celebrate and glory in the cross together in our forgiveness of sins that we've been granted in Christ. It's just a wonderful privilege to anticipate that. We're going to be looking into God's Word this morning in the Old Testament from the book of Job, Job 1 and 2. I'm going to be emphasizing the sovereignty of God and suffering and the spiritual warfare dynamic that is found in the midst of each. A couple things that are going on in the life of our church. Uh, If you'll take your bulletin and just look in there, there's so many things that are highlighted in terms of men's ministry and women's ministry. Uh, Steve Hatter, one of our elders, mentioned that we had a men's night out. Be looking for those opportunities. I want to encourage you to look for opportunities to connect with people in the body. I think oftentimes we think of, this is uh, my preamble to preaching, we think of, <laughs> we think of uh, you know, connecting with people only in terms of serving in programs, but really the church is about connecting with people in relationships. So these are ways to facilitate relationship. So look in there. One uh, ministry I want to highlight is in women's ministry. It's called Royal Family Kids Camp. And that is kind of a nationwide project to reach out to foster kids uh, that need encouragement and the gospel. And one way that we are ministering is through uh, Jean Lapp and Peggy Hutchins, who are uh, facilitating the opportunity to make pillowcases and bless these children. So if you want to donate to that or participate in that, this Saturday we have uh, that ministry. It's kind of a workshop opportunity to make those. I think I received a couple pillowcases. My wife and I did, not that we're foster kids, but because uh, we, we were being blessed when we came Uh, candidating last year around this time. So I think we um, got a couple pillowcases ourselves. But look at that as an opportunity to minister. And also um, next to that in the bulletin, you'll see children's ministry. There are so many places to serve in the body in nursery and preschool. And I know that uh, those who work in children's ministry would appreciate you prayerfully considering that as well. Also, we have a Good Friday communion service coming up um, kind of in the, the The bulletin right here on this panel, you'll see the details for that as we anticipate Resurrection Sunday that will be here before long. So we want to anticipate that as well in our calendars. Um, You know, I had a great time at the Shepherds Conference. Just wanted to mention that to you. I was gone last Sunday from the pulpit because I was flying back with Steve Hatter. He went with me kind of as a lay elder, and we had an explosively encouraging time there at Grace Community Church. Uh, It was 4,000 men who came, and it used to be a conference for men and their wives, but they've packed out the facility so much with pastors and with elders that it's kind of become kind of a man cave sort of experience where we're all packed in, and we're we're singing, um, exalting the Lord, singing songs like, Rise Up, O Men of God, and we had... 300 uh, seminarians who were decked out in the choir loft singing to us and we were singing back and singing a mighty fortress is our God. So it was just, it was a really robust time where we were exhilarated in the Lord. And you've got John MacArthur as the keynote speaker, one of the speakers, and he now is 70 years old. And as he stood in the pulpit, it really you had the sense in the room that the general was standing to give us our orders and give us uh, really the core values of what we stand for and the truth and uh, fighting the good fight of faith. And 
sending us back charged up to uh, minister again. And so I'm energized to be back with you and want to share out of Job 1 and 2 based on what I believe the Lord was prompting in my heart over that conference time. Uh, During the conference, one of the key themes was spiritual warfare and that Satan is alive and well and he's trying to sideline Christians from living in the Christian fight and battle to their fullest. And I don't want any one of us to be sidelined in our Christian walk and experience. And I want us to to be encouraged from how Job persevered and how his faith could not be destroyed no matter what happened to him. You know, I was thinking about warfare this week and reflecting on the, the war on terror that our nation has waged and how troops are still being sent over to Iraq and Afghanistan and other places and how five years ago or so it seemed like the war on terror was in the news and the newspapers uh, every time you turned around. Every hour or half hour on TV, a news blip would, would be put in front of us. And these days it's just less and le- lesser um, coverage of that. And there's just, I don't know why the media isn't highlighting the war. Maybe it's circumstantial or where things are in terms of um, what's happening. But uh, when you get away from being reminded that the war is going on, it's easy to be lulled asleep to sleep about it, isn't it? It's almost like we've forgotten that it's going on. And it's that way in the church as well. We need God's media, which is the scripture, to remind us that there is a battle being waged against us as believers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against world forces, against Satan himself, who is, who is hurtling flaming darts at your soul and at your life and within your circumstances. And we need to recognize that that is real. And so I want us to look now at... Job chapters 1 and 2, to see a man who persevered under extreme attack. You know in the scripture that warfare is a theme strung throughout Genesis to Revelation. You had Eve who was tempted by Satan who slithered into the garden and said, look, God is withholding something from you. You can't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, it's like, I mean, Eve had everything. She had kind of a perfect existence. She even had a perfect husband, right? I mean, that's amazing. That's a good blessing. And, and, yet, and yet it wasn't enough. And Satan was tempting her that way. Satan tempted Jesus to say, look, you're the son of God, so take, take what's yours now. You know, deny the Father's will and, and bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat. And Satan denied the Lord three times. Paul was a missionary and pastor at the church of Corinth. And he said, I have this thorn in the flesh that's like a spear wedged into my side. And I believe his thorn was what he calls in 2 Corinthians 12, a messenger of Satan. Which is a messenger, that word in the original language is angelos. So it's the idea of an angel of Satan or a demon of Satan was terrorizing him. And I, I attribute that to the false teachers who were attacking his character. If you've ever been attacked and maligned in your character, then you know that that is a a terrible kind of attack. And he was praying that that would be released from him. 1 Peter 5 says that the devil roars and he's like a roaring lion and that we need to be alert and watchful that he's after us. And James 4 calls you and me individually to submit to God and resist the devil. So he's alive and well. He's not sequestered down in hell. 
compartmentalized there. He's alive and he's our enemy. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, look, I know the devil is alive and well. I wrestled with him all morning. 1 John 4, 4 puts it this way. Greater is he who is in you than than he who is in the world. So we have hope. But just because we have hope, we should also not deny the fact that we need to be alert. The schemes are real and active, but we have the hope and knowledge that our faith will not ultimately fail. We will not flatline spiritually ultimately, right? We are going to heaven, and that's assured to you and me, even though we have this enemy. Peter denied Christ three times, but was restored three times by Christ. The thorn in the flesh in the flesh existed in Paul's life, but God's grace was sufficient for him, and his power was perfected. God's power was perfected in Paul's weakness, right? We can submit to God. We can resist the devil. We can put on the armor of God against him. And I, I know of no other story in the Bible that captures how a man perseveres through satanic attack and how a man's faith will not fail no matter how many satanic hammer blows are given to him than this man Job. Let's learn of this man. It's a, it's a poetic narrative. I'm only covering two chapters this morning. It's a hunk of scripture, but it all hangs together. And it's about a real historic person. He was as real as Moses and as real as Daniel. In Ezekiel 14, you have mention of Noah, you have Daniel, you have men of the faith, and you have Job. He existed, he lived pre or post Noah's flood and pre Moses. In James 5, he's called a steadfast man. He's an example to us of steadfastness. Job was a real person who had had real problems and real struggles in his life. He would vacillate from saying, I know my Redeemer lives in Job 19 to Job 23, where he says, I lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. So he struggled and he wrestled, but he persevered and his faith would not be destroyed. And that's the point of this book. No matter what a true believer goes through, they will not ultimately deny the Lord. They can't do it. It's a faith that is indestructible. And that's our hope. It's unkillable. So in these chapters, we're going to look at five different scenes. There are five different vignettes. And within these five scenes, there are two incredible, remarkable, unforgettable expressions of unkillable faith. Two expressions of indestructible faith. That's what we're going to look at. And there's five different scenes. It's as if the camera pans up into heaven and shows us what's going on in the courts of heaven and then pans back down and shows how that's playing out on earth and back and forth it toggles to show us this dynamic between heaven and earth, between God's sovereignty, spiritual warfare, and a man persevering through it. That's what we have here. Let's look at the first scene. The first scene is verses 1 through 5. This is the setup. It's setting the stage for what's going to happen by showing us Job's integrity and wealth. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. 
his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is a man who had incredible wealth. He had wealth like Solomon, King Solomon would have had. It's a man in in the Middle East, kind of in the Arabian uh, country, who was notably wealthy. You just can't imagine how much this man had in comparison to everyone else. He's given a fourfold commendation regarding his integrity that he possessed at the same time, though. First of all, he was blameless. You couldn't bring a charge against him. He was upright. In other words, he was honest. He, He attained his wealth honestly. He feared God, he was humble, he was reverent before his Lord, and he turned away from evil. He was the same on the inside as he was on the outside. Perfect integrity, he was the real thing. It's what made him the prime target for God to to, to allow Satan to do this to him made sense because he was the real thing. His wealth was measured in his family. He had... Look at this, seven sons and three daughters. In other words, this man was not only rich, wealthy, and powerful, he had a guaranteed legacy, which would have been very important to him as a man from that time period for his name to continue on. And it was as if it was guaranteed. You had two sort of numbers of completion, seven sons and three daughters. His quiver was full. He was intimidating. In Job 29, it talked about Job walking around the city gates and how men, young men, would withdraw from him in in honor and intimidation. And the aged would stand in his presence. It's like the president is coming to town. It said that the tongue of nobles stuck to the roof of their mouths in Job 29. Now, personally, I've had this experience. Not the Job part, but the, the tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth experience. It happened last week at the Shepherds Conference. I was, uh, you know, I was up front, I was with Steve Hatter, one of the elders, and introducing him to some of the men, some of the speakers, and we're just walking by, and all of a sudden there's Al Mohler. Now, if you know who Al Mohler is, he's a statesman and evangelical, he stands really tall, he's been on Larry King Live, you know, defending the faith, defending, um, you know, Christianity and Christian values in the midst of our culture, he writes a blog every night, he's uh, on the radio, He's just a really, really sort of formidable personality to meet. He, uh, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And, and he turned that seminary around as a young man from being a liberal seminary to being one of the premier conservative, evangelical, Bible-centered, God-honoring seminaries that's in our country. And so with that in my mind, I extend my hand to him, and I say, hi, this is, uh, I was trying to say Stephen Hatter, and it came out in some way that what was lost in translation was Stephen turned to Steuben, and and so all of a sudden, you know, Al looks at Stephen and goes, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you, Steuben, and I'm just stuck. I'm just going, well, all right, away we go. So this was was Job. He, He was a man 
who garnered respect. He had a homogeneous household, sisters, brothers, getting together, having a great time. And he was a godly dad offering sacrifices for his family for sins that they had not even committed. Well, with this integrity in place, the camera pans up into heaven and shows us what's going on between God and the devil in verses 6 through 12. Follow as I read 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? What you have here is a scene where God and Satan are communicating in the presence of either holy angels or the demons as an entourage coming with Satan, that being the sons of God. But Satan's having to give a report before God as to what he is doing. It's a picture of God's sovereignty. Now, you might immediately think, how is God who is holy in the presence with the devil, who is utterly unholy and despicable? Well, we don't really have an answer to that question, but it's a good question to ask because we know God dwells in unapproachable light, as the New Testament says. And he is enshrined in holiness, but at the same time, there must be some way that he buffers himself from Satan, but is able to communicate with him. We know that God is the God who oversees hell. God is everywhere. And so we have this dilemma in more than one scenario. But Satan and God are communicating and God is initiating this conversation. He's the one who's saying, consider Job. He recognizes that Satan is running to and fro and he's wanting to devour someone. And so God, for his own purposes, to prove that nothing can destroy Job's faith, offers his premier servant, something that Job will never be aware of this side of heaven. How is God sovereign over the devil? You know, I was just thinking of another quote from Martin Luther. He said, the devil is God's devil. You know, the devil is the adversary. He is the enemy. He is the accuser. And God somehow, in his sovereign purview, allows for Satan to do things. And it's part of God's bidding, but God is not responsible for the sin that Satan is initiating. And the Lord offers Job, who is the real thing. The four commendations of Job is what sets the stage Job, who would never know why satanic hammer blows are coming against him, only is responsible to trust in God. He doesn't need to know why, but he needs to know who is sovereign over his suffering, right? Satan, who is the father of lies, begins to lie about Job In verse 9, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Stop there. uh, Satan is saying of Job that, look, Job is at a conflict of interest. 
His integrity is not real. He's not really living for you because of you. He's living for you supposedly because of all the stuff that you've given to him. You put a thorny hedge of protection around him. He's got everything. Look at all of his wealth. That's not integrity. That's just stuff. And he's living for that, not you. It's kind of a twist on the temptation, isn't it? I mean, he told Eve in the garden, look, God is withholding from you. God is withholding something from you, so sin against him. And Jesus, he went to and said, God is withholding the kingdoms of the world from you. They're rightfully yours. Go your own way. And now he kind of twists things up here and says, look, this integrity that you think Job has is not real. It's all based on what you've given him. Kind of interesting how Satan works. Well, What does God say in verse 12? He says, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The scene now pans back down to earth, and we are getting ready to see the beginning of a satanic Pearl Harbor attack that will come against Job. It says, Now... There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While we were, he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You can see this this building effect where one servant after the other, shoulder to shoulder, crams into the doorway, telling the next awful, horrendous thing that has happened to Job. First beginning with his wealth, beginning with his possessions, as if Sodom and Gomorrah fire came down from heaven and and struck down what he had. And and, And then you have the wind that comes and takes the house down that his kids were in like a house of cards crushing them to death immediately it's like one bad news report piling up on the other what's job's response what's what's our response by the way i mean something like this could happen to us things like this things like these things have happened to you you've lost much before i'm sure but I think that it's instructive for us to take what Job's faith expression is to heart and to, to, to load it in our minds, to have it ready for us when calamity comes, right? We know that suffering will come and we know that it's under the sovereign purview of God and it's important for us to be ready, to have our hearts ready to respond well. 
When you read verses 20 and 21, you could read Job's response to be something that's erratic or irrational or out of control, like he's, he's, he's just falling to pieces before our eyes. But the way that Job responds is very methodical, and it's very in keeping with the culture of the day, and it's to make a point. Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. For Job to tear his robe was his way of saying, listen, I am not in control. Uh, God, you are in control. I am not someone who clothes myself. That's what you do. I'm just naked before you. And for him to shave his head is a symbol of him saying, listen, I am as humbly dependent as a newborn babe is to his mother for life and health. I am that man who is, who is utterly incapable of helping himself. I'm laying on my deathbed, unable to help myself, knowing that I'm going to die. That's what Job does here as an act of worship. Look what he says in verse 21. He said, naked I come, came from my mother's womb, just like a newborn babe, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What does Job do? Does he respond in anger? Does he respond in self-sufficiency? Does he, does he bow his back and say, listen, I need to fix my life with doing things. I need to have more children. I need to acquire more stuff. That's oftentimes what the world does. They, they, they face calamity not in utter humility and self, uh, you know, self-sacrifice and dependence before God, but instead they try to create for themselves their own peace. And instead, Job pressed his face to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped his God. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. You know, there was a book that I read when I was studying through the book of Job, and it's called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God. I would definitely recommend this book to you. It's a great book of poetry that's wedding together the life experience of Job and his suffering with the cross. Follow as I, or listen as I read this section of Piper's poem. It says, And now come, broken to the cross, where Christ embraced all human lost, loss, and let us bow before the throne of God, who gives and takes his own, and promises whatever toll he takes to satisfy your soul. Come learn the lesson of the rod. The treasure that we have in God. He is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. We have, set, we have Satan's second accusation that follows in the next scene. The scene pans back up into heaven as we begin the second chapter. It says, and again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, again initiating this, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Let's stop there. God again offers Job to Satan. Again, proving his point that saving faith is indestructible. He proves this point to the courts of heaven, and he proves this point to us. We should receive this point as the church because God has laid this story out for you. Nothing can break your faith. You will not flatline ultimately as you are being tried or as you would come under this kind of satanic attack. For Satan to say skin for skin is his way of saying, listen, if you destroy his flesh, if you If you do more than just take away his comforts, but now you make him utterly uncomfortable, his his true heart will come out. He's not the real thing. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that no one ever hated their own flesh, but nurtures and cherishes it. It's true. We feed ourselves, we, we drink, we sleep, we take care of ourselves, and that's natural. And what Satan is banking on is that when, when Job's health is ripped away from him, that Job will apostatize or leave God. God sets one parameter in, in verse 6, and he says to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Why did he do that? Well, he said, spare his life because ultimately if Job died and was snuffed out, we couldn't see his, that his faith was still alive all the way to the end. And so basically, he was allowing Satan to do everything but kill Job. Everything. I mean, how bad was it for Job to suffer in the way that he did? What were these loathsome sores of verse 7? Here, listen, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the head of his crown, or the crown of his head. And he took, Job did, a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. How bad were these loathsome sores? Well, Job was basically reduced to sitting in an ash heap and trying to scrape away the sores because he was in so much pain. Steve Lawson, who wrote a commentary on the book of Job, put it this way. He said, the skin covering his entire body was afflicted. He may have had elephantitis or a cancer of the skin. His gruesome condition was characterized by ulcerous sores, itching, degenerative changes in his facial skin. Now, the next series of descriptions come directly from the book of Job. 
Um, the degenerative changes in facial skin, that's verse 12 in this chapter. Loss of appetite, chapter 3, 24. Depression, worms and boils, chapter 7, verse 5. Hardening of skin and running sores, chapter 7, verse 5. Difficulty breathing, chapter 9, verse 18. Dark eyelids, chapter 16, verse 16. Foul breath, chapter 19, verse 17. Weight loss, 19, 20. Continual pain, chapter 30, verse 17. Blackened skin, chapter 30, verse 30. And fever. All of this for months on end. How bad was it for this man, Job? It was a living hell. That's how bad it was. It was a hellish existence. It was, it was the living dead. That's what we find in Job sitting there, scratching himself and scraping himself in the ash heap. It was probably all he could do to speak. That's how bad and pitiful it was. With this in mind comes Job's second faith expression. How do you respond in saving faith? How do you do this? Well, you do it because it's not you. It's what the Spirit of God does in you and through you when you're knocked down. That's saving faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Stop there. When Job's wife came to him and said, curse God and die, you know what she was saying? She's saying, curse God so he'll kill you. That was the expectation. Curse God so this will be over. End it now. Which would have played right into Satan's hands, right? You know, leave God apostatize against, you know, leaving God and apostatize and be against God so that he will kill you. That's what she's saying. I like Job's very gracious response to his wife, though. And I mean this. I mean, you can read it as ungracious, but I think he was being gracious where he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Stop there. He's saying... You're talking like an unbeliever. That's what he's saying. That's how harsh Job was. You're speaking like someone who is like the fool who said in their hearts, there is no God. And then here comes faith. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The Bible is saying that Job's response is faith-filled and it's panoramic. It's Job saying, look, God has blessed me in so many ways. He's blessed us in so many ways. Can we not see God's blessing as one aspect of our life and faith? And then when calamity comes, not sinful evil, but calamity or disaster, when that comes, can we not receive that from God as well? That's what Job is saying. That's what faith does. Faith sees things in a big picture under God's sovereign hand, both good and evil. He didn't sin with his lips. That basically means his faith never failed. He did not ultimately curse God. Again, from the poetry of Piper. Sometimes the spark of faith is slight. And does not make the darkness bright. But keep it lit and you will find far better this than being blind. 
One little flame when all is night proves there is such a thing as light. Remember now the place and price where Jesus promised paradise. One answered prayer when all is gone will give you hope to wait for dawn. Is God your sovereign God even when you're experiencing calamity? This is the promise of unshakable faith, unkillable, indestructible faith, that God is still our sovereign even when life is doling out the most difficult things and outcomes and circumstances, even when we might perceive and believe that Satan is allowed at this point to give us hammer blows to our soul, we, we still can say, God, you are in control. You are sovereign. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're experiencing. But there's comfort in the sovereignty of God. Behind every dark cloud, it's been said, there's the smiling sun of God's sovereign grace. I like the way Martin Luther summarizes spiritual warfare in his most famous hymn, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let me read to you um, line one and line three. This is my theology of spiritual warfare. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Line three. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we approach the Lord's table now that we can do so in faith and in humility. We come to you bowing before the cross, recognizing that, God, we are helpless like Job. We are those who are reduced to being infants in your sight. Lord, to recognize you as holy and sovereign even over Satan's realm is appropriate And Lord, to find solace and comfort in the cross is indeed even more appropriate. We recognize that you have saved us from our sins. And God, as we look now to the elements, the bread and the cup, we realize that they are but mere symbols. But God, you've commanded us to look to these symbols to remind us of the joy of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask the men to come forward now to serve us. The bread is the symbol of Jesus' body that was given for you and given for me. It was crushed for our iniquities. As the men now distribute the bread, let me read to you Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9 as a point of meditation. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By the oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And 
as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I'd invite you now to bow your heads to take a moment of self-examination to confess your sins privately and personally to your God and to find solace and comfort in his body that was shed or his body that was crushed on the cross for us. Although we have examined Job chapters 1 and 2 and Job's suffering that is horrific and was just an example of extreme suffering, I now want to turn our attention to the suffering of Christ on the cross. The cross is a symbol of execution, and it, it brings to mind a gruesome and bloody and horrific death. But what was gruesome then and still would be gruesome, is to us also a beautiful uh, reminder of the forgiveness of our sins. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, we would still be lost. We would have no redemption. But because he did suffer under the wrath of God and persevered, we have um, peace with God. We have Christ's righteousness. So remembering these things, let's partake in the bread together. As the men now distribute the cup, I'm going to read a few more verses from Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, that speak of the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us where we stand free and forgiven. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Allow these words to be your meditation as we prepare to take the cup together.
when Jesus was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, he was pleading to God that he would not have to drink the cup. And the cup that he was talking about in his prayer was the cup of wrath. Now, as Jesus anticipated going to be nailed on a Roman cross, that would have been a horrifying thought. But what was more horrifying to Jesus was the idea that the full weight of God's wrath was going to be against him while he suffered and bled for you and me. Jesus bore our sins in his own body, one who was blameless and perfect, and experienced being cut off from his heavenly Father for you and me. And because he drank that cup, that's why we can drink this cup. This is why we can commemorate and celebrate the shed blood of Jesus because when Jesus died, he looked up to the Father and said, it is finished to telestai, it's over. And so Jesus' suffering was over and he rose again and we too will rise one day in heaven. And right now we experience a foretaste of glory as we celebrate the gospel together in this communion. Let's drink. Heavenly Father, I thank you for communion in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'd invite you now to stand together as we have our final benediction. And Elder Stephen Hatter is going to close us now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the man, Job, that did live in history. Thank you for... Your Holy Scripture, Lord, that is written for us, for where we are right now. Thank you for the fact that it was recorded for our benefit, so as to understand the truth. Thank you, Lord, that we can apply this truth to our circumstances today. We can leave here today and ponder the story of Job as we work through circumstances and as we hang on to our faith, Father. Thank you for Pastor Jeff's boldness to preach the word without equivocation, without molding it to send a different message, but to send your message to us, Father, that we need to look to the cross, Father. Thank you that the message of Job is is really pointing to the cross of Christ. Thank you that it helps us understand the stakes of the game, as it were, and what you did for us. Lord, may we work out our faith this week. May we hang on to our faith. May we realize that because you put it in us first, It is unshakable, it is unkillable, no matter what the circumstances. At the same time, I pray that as the body of believers, we would come alongside one another in comfort and not challenge God's truth, but comfort in truth. So, Father, I pray we would just go out with a new understanding this morning, praising your name and knowing that it is well with our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.